0: Hello everyone, happy Monday and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. The Premier League has returned and so have we on the day that Crystal Palace plucked up the Dutch courage to sack their manager after just four games in charge. We will get to that, plus a look at the key talking points to emerge from the weekend, plus a look ahead to this season's Champions League where the continent's finest will combine to try and prevent an unprecedented three-peat from Florentino Perez's evil death star Real Madrid. But first, and without further ado, please allow me to introduce you to my carers for the day. They are Peckham's finest, Jack Pitt Hi Hi Ed. And to fulfil our international quotient, we have the pride of Wales, Jack Austin. Hello. And so to the Premier League, where Manchester United and Manchester City are joint top after differing Saturdays. And we'll start off by speaking quickly about City's 5-0 win over Liverpool, Jack, which should, with a result like that, have been important. It should have been a game to tell us a lot. And yet that red card, which we won't bother going too deeply into, has been done to death already. That swung the game so violently in City's favour that it's hard to draw any serious, long-lasting conclusions from a game that we would have hoped would have told us a lot.
1: I have to say, I was less, I am less confident about Manchester City winning the Premier League, having seen that game. Just because I thought they were so open when it was 11, 11 against 11. Salah got in behind Nicolas Otamendi three or four times in that first half. Uh you know, we've seen so far the season. We've seen Otamendi get given a chasing by Calvert Lewin for Everton, by Josh King of Bournemouth, and now Salah. The one time he hasn't had a nightmare so far the season was when City played Brighton. I think City have got a serious problem on that side of the back three. I think that without company, they're a mess. And I'm, you know, having been having always been impressed by City's attacking play under Guardiola, and they were certainly very good going forward. And the partnership between Aguero and Jesus looked better than it ever has done before. I have to say that I think the defense is just is just is still too vulnerable for City really to do anything this season.
0: Uh, I mean, I kind of agree on why. I so I think this, they started last season, Guardiola's first year in charge, of defender short. They thought they were going to get Imeric Laporte, and they and they didn't end up getting him. Uh, they've started this season a defender short again, and you know they could have had Johnny Evans. They just needed to go out and get him. The, the insistence on it being one in one out with with Mangala, but they know that Mangala is not a guy that Pep wants to use. So it is a bit of a messy situation. Uh, Jack Austin, did you have any any big takeaways from City-Liverpool? I know it's difficult.
2: Uh, I think you learnt more about Liverpool than City doing after the sending off because they just fell apart. Uh, They had two centre midfielders effectively dropping back to centre-back and they were split open far too easily for a few of the goals. Um, And if you look back to how last season, for example, when United went down to 10 men in the FA Cup against Chelsea, you didn't get that from them. They didn't completely fall apart and they didn't concede five and I think that's the difference right now for Liverpool is that they can't shut up shop when they need to against the big teams. It is two sides that that attack
0: far better than they defend I think that's fair to say. Uh, City are now joint top because Manchester United dropped points Um, they dropped points at Stoke where they had a two-all draw. Eric Maxim Choupo moting with both goals for the Potters and uh, for Manchester United fortunately Marcus Rashford again stepping up he's had a good start to the season and Romelu Lukaku getting a goal um Jack you watch this one for us um it's the first time Man United have come up against a half decent side in the Premier League this year is that fair to say and they kind of met a bit of a roadblock in Stoke
2: yeah with no disrespect to the teams they've played so far they've they've won them at a bit of a cancer um obviously against Leicester it was more towards the end of the game where they really just flexed their muscles and blew them away but yeah I think Stoke really ruffled a few feathers um Mourinho obviously knew that before the start of the game because he put the three centre midfielders in. He brought brought in Herrera, dropped um, uh, Mata, so he, he knew it was going to be a battle. He, yeah, exactly. So he knew there was something to win in the midfield. But I mean, he he obviously reacted poorly with all the Mark Hughes stuff on the sidelines. So he himself was clearly ruffled. I think they they've still got places. Well, where he should have strengthened in the summer. If you look at left back, for example, where Damian came in for Blind, and he was pretty poor uh, defensively. Admittedly, he did set up both goals, started with him, but he just was lost at sea at points. Uh, The opening goal came from a mistake where he came too close to the centre-backs, and obviously, Choupa Moting took advantage. (laughs) A well-known Choupa Moting. (laughs) Jack,
0: they do have a bit of a problem at left back. Uh, Luke Shaw, obviously still at the club, but... Obviously not particularly fancied by, by Jose Mourinho and has had fitness problems himself. Do you think, though, pretty much every single one of the top contenders for the Premier League has a hole in their squad? But it might be that whoever has the, the least impactful gap could be the one that comes out on top at, uh, until January at least.
1: Quite possibly, yeah, although you'd like to think that with the money that Manchester United has spent, I mean, I think, I think they're a bit like City in this regard. When you've, got that, when you've spent that much money on players, you should really have insulated yourself against injury concerns. That's why, for example, I think you, you know we, we can't accept that as an excuse from City this season, just like we can't from United, whereas obviously, say, Tottenham, for example, or Liverpool certainly, would be incredibly vulnerable to injuries to two or three key players. Well,
0: I mean, that's how Spurs have been for the last couple of seasons, and then that's why we rated the signing of Fernando Llorente so highly, because finally they have actually addressed a, a position of, of need, even if it was a backup position of need. Um, the the interesting thing uh, that our colleague Miguel Delaney pointed out, I think, was he said before that Manchester United's attacking sometimes relies too much on, on a player just being able to create something from nothing. And then if you were going to do that, then why not have someone like Anthony Martial, who might be the most naturally creative attacker, I think that's fair to say. Why don't you not afford him the freedom and get him in the right areas rather than marooning him on the flank and, and asking him to, to track back? So do you think, Jack, that there was evidence of perhaps that, that struggle? that Jose can coach a def- uh, defensively-minded team very well. He can coach those, those two lines of four very well. But when it comes to the attacking pattern play, they weren't necessarily that incisive against Stoke.
2: Yeah, a Mourinho team is more set up not to lose than to win, I think. And with Martial, he's more of a player who's going to go out and win a game rather than hold them, which I think has been to his detriment in terms of team selection this season, especially with Rashford probably works a fair bit harder going backwards. Um, but they've both, Rashford and Martial, have both been really, really good this season. Um and it just, I think Mourinho's task is getting them both in the same team and trusting them both to work back, but also just allowing them to run free up front because those two either side of Lukaku, the way they're all playing at the moment, could destroy any defence. The other big uh, talking point to come out of the Premier League
0: this weekend, uh, actually occurring on Monday, uh, with Frank de Boer being sacked by Crystal Palace. We told you last Sunday that it was basically win or bust at Burnley, and they, they didn't win despite playing... Pretty well, actually. In the end, it was a much improved performance. Do we think, Jack, that even without even without that improvement, he was a dead man walking because the problems behind the scenes are just a little bit? It, they'd obviously decided behind the scenes it wasn't going to work with Frank.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think ultimately the disc the difference between the style of play that the players wanted to play and that they have been playing with some success over the last five or six years and the style of play that Frank de Boer wanted to teach them, which is too different. Like, you can't... I mean, the only way of bridging that gap is by selling half the squad and spending £100 million on replacements, which obviously they're unwilling to do. Um, so in that sense, it was probably never going to work. I think some of us, me included, should have, been, should have known or should have sensed that at the time. Um, and you've got to say fair play to, to Crystal Palace for pulling the trigger now, rather than leaving it until November when they've you know, they lost a lot more ground than their rivals.
0: And uh, pull the trigger they have, uh, seemingly, on on his replacement. We, Again, we said before that they'd sent out the feelers uh, for a replacement while ball was still in the job, even in August, which tells you how badly this has gone so quickly. Roy Hodgson almost certain to come in on what we expect to be a two-year contract. The former England manager hasn't been seen since uh, that elimination against Iceland, famously. Euro 2016 but uh, I suppose the question is a is he the right man for Palace in terms of fit and b
2: is he enough to keep them up I think in terms of short term the clubs that he's done best at in the Premier League have been the sort of Palace fit if you look at Fulham and he did decently at West Brom as well
0: limited resources exactly yeah it it kind of is kind of an English core players who are not perhaps the most
2: technically talented but you know the odd star in there yeah exactly but in terms of looking ahead to the future i think it's uh i think it's a bit of a short it's a very short-term decision i mean can you see roy hodgson being manager in three years time i i, I don't personally no
0: I, I agree with that i also think it's crucial uh actually you know they brought in the sporting director doogie freeman for whatever reason a week before the end of the transfer window. Friedman comes in as sporting director. So the whole thing with a sporting director is that it's supposed to provide consistency at a club over a long period so that you can lose a manager in the way that Southampton have. Southampton have lost three or four managers with Les Reid uh, overseeing the general football side of, of the club. And they haven't really lost their way because they've got one guiding influence and then a coach who comes in and does his job. And if he doesn't do his job, then he goes. Palace now have a sporting director who's going to work with Roy Hodgson in Doogie Friedman, uh, who's like half his age, but it's fine. It can still work. Sporting directors aren't just in charge of transfers. Friedman now has to be looking ahead for the next two years and scouting managers, effectively. Because if you lose a manager for any... So if Hodgson did well and got plucked away by a bigger club, I know it's unlikely, but if that happened or if he did badly and got sacked, they'd have to have an idea, Jack, of who they want to bring in, right?
1: Yeah, completely. And I, I think you're right that teams outside of the big six in the Premier League are slowly realising, and Palace are a good example of this, as are Southampton, that in fact, you don't need stability to stay in the Premier League. You don't Agreed. need to build with the same guy. I mean, wh- I mean, it's basically, if you think that your way to stay in the Premier League and to survive is to... Pick the right manager, and hopefully he'll be good for five years. You're you you are putting too many eggs in one basket. Yeah. And in fact, the better way of doing it is the other way around, which is get a you know get a director of football to build a good squad. The squad stays in place, and then it's the manager that changes every year or so. I mean, it, I mean, let's wait and see what happens with Pellegrino because so far it looks pretty pretty bad at Saints. But generally, I mean, the Southampton example shows, or the Watford example, or the Palace example shows that actually. You know the fans might not like it but it's actually it's an effect it's a cost effective way of staying in the prem well actually
0: with the way the premier league is now that the nature of the beast if you're a mid-table club like palace Watford, southampton they're the best examples i think you're right and they all changed manager this summer so pellegrino silver and De Boer. De Boer did badly he gets sacked pellegrino could stay so he does badly eventually down the line he gets sacked Marco Silva does really well he gets plucked away by a bigger club if you're in the middle of of the league where relegation is the biggest fear then you basically are you're, you're forced to live with short-term managers because if they're really good then they get taken by someone else and if they're bad then the threat of relegation is so grave with the financial implications of it that you have to bin them and that's what you know Palace you can say they've had what seven managers in six years now which is incredible they've also been in the top flight for five years, which is their longest ever stint in the top flight. So the most success they've ever had is with a revolving door of coaches, it almost doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. And that's why I wonder whether the examples which are sometimes more celebrated, which are uh, Sean Dyche at Burnley and Eddie Howe at Bournemouth, where instead of, you know, the players stay in place and the manager changes every year, it's a manager with a very clear idea who's brought in his own group of players who play according to his idea of football. Now, I think that those two teams would be more vulnerable if their managers were to leave than the, the three teams that you just mentioned, because th- effectively all of Bournemouth's eggs are in the Eddie Howe basket and the equivalent is true at Burnley as well. Um, and that means that, you know, it's obviously like more now they, they punch their weight more, But I think if they were to lose their manager under whatever circumstances, then they would be more at risk of struggling.
0: And Bournemouth certainly a topic we want to touch in the next couple of podcasts just because of their struggles early in the season. Uh, Elsewhere in the Premier League, it was a good weekend for Watford. As we said, Marco Silva's done a great job there. They deserve a closer look as well. Chelsea winning at Leicester. Brighton got their first Premier League win. Uh, On Sunday's games, Newcastle and Burnley both got three points. And Arsenal buried Bournemouth, uh, who do look like could be relegation candidates. Arsenal turning their attention to Europe this week and actually so will we because the Champions League is upon us. Uh, it begins on, on Tuesday evening and we've got a full slate of games. We've got five of course Premier League teams in there. Uh, we preview the tournament as a whole on our website and you can find that in the usual place at independent.co.uk slash sport but we wanted to dive in with a little bit more in-depth chat uh, on the podcast and I'd like to start with the last one ended on a damp night in Cardiff. White confetti everywhere and Real Madrid as champions. Uh, back-to-back titles for the Bernabeu Club. The first team to do so in this competition, they've really come to make their own. Obviously, they had a lot of success in the the 50s and in the olden times. But in the era of the Super Club, which we are undoubtedly in, there are now five Champions Leagues in a row that have been won by the old-school European elite, Bayern, Barca, Real Madrid. And you're going back to Roberto Di Matteo's Chelsea to try and find some sort of pauper, relative pauper on the world stage. And we know how much money Chelsea have got behind them. So I guess what I'm asking uh, both Jacks, has the Champions League become too predictable?
1: Yes, from a sporting perspective, I think that you don't want to watch or pe I say that there's like a sporting value to having a competition where there is a high proportion of the teams who are in it who could win it in any year. You know, that's one of the reasons why I think people like American sports, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I think that lots of fans around the world are incredibly attached to the big teams. Like there's no, there's no getting past the fact that from a commercial standpoint, oh, you, for sure, yeah. you wouldn't want to have Monaco Porto in the final. Um, and, you know, it's very, and we spend a lot of, we, we spend a lot of time criticizing oh, it's endless Real Madrid against Borussia Dortmund and endless Barcelona against Juventus. But from a like commercially and in terms of TV ratings, that is where, that is where the money is basically. Um, and I think that ultimately, as we know, this is the last year of the current rules. And the next year, the big teams are going to get even stronger through the, the changing of the seedings and the giving four places to the, all the four teams, sorry, to the four big leagues. And therefore, we know that ultimately, it's only going to be more like this down the line. Like this, is, this, unfortunately, is the direction that the Champions League is heading in.
0: How many teams, other Jack, do you think could actually win the Champions League? You look at, look at the slate this year, list me the teams that you actually think could do the, could go the whole way
2: it's it's slim pickings i think this year to be honest um i think of the big clubs not many of them have strengthened uh barcelona have lost neymar i mean psg obviously they've strengthened hugely but um but, Munich, but do we
0: consider them a contender well psg
2: it, I, I think you have to consider them a, a contender i mean they've gone to the semi-finals before yes yeah um and they've only got stronger this year it's you know they could get to the final i, just, I can't see them winning it this year the interesting thing, is obviously, with them is that
0: this is how they actually measure their success now because, that, OK, they, they they dominated France. They didn't win the league last year, I know, but they have dominated France. They've taken France over. They've taken Monaco's best player. They've taken Neymar off Barcelona. However, they want to be considered one of the European elite. That's what this whole summer has been about. And it's what the whole project has been about. And they've certainly gained the attention, uh, unwanted attention in, in some aspects of the European elite. So,
2: do they have to win it? Do you think for their whole project to be a success? Um, Immediately, no. But certainly in the next three to five years, yes. Um, I mean, I don't think their project is near complete yet. If you look at their their forward line, is pretty pretty set. So, yeah. But they're they're like a bodybuilder who skips leg day. They've got no defense. Like they haven't built up the defense like they have the attack. Um, And I think until they do that, they can't be considered. Uh, amongst the top three favourites,
1: I think PSG are a really an interesting example of a big team in a small league. Like ultimately, because they're they're so untested in the French league, it means that they can. I mean, like I'd said, I know they didn't win it last year, but in theory, they can because they're not they're not tested week on week in Ligue 1. It means that when they then play one of the big boys in Europe, they just don't know how to cope. Like we saw that when they collapsed six one and lost to Barcelona last year when they were knocked out. Even the year before then, when they went out in the quarterfinals to a really, really poor Manchester City team under Manuel Pellegrini, they blew it at home, drew two all, they lost one nil at the Etihad. So I think that you can certainly point to a lack of kind of, I don't know what the right word is, maybe it's resilience or now or experience in the biggest games against the biggest teams, which is probably what's holding them back.
0: My theory is that basically, I, I think there are only a certain amount of teams that can win it. I, you could probably list them now Real Madrid, Barcelona. I think Atletico Madrid are one of those teams as well. Juventus is the only team from Italy that can win it. Bayern are the only.
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you
0: every team in germany that can win it psg i think now you can add to the list I'm not convinced any of the English clubs are ready. Uh, I think Manchester City have the best chance because of Pep Guardiola. However, as we've said, their defence isn't good enough. And if they came up against a really good team, they're going to get in trouble that way. So if you look at those, Bayern and PSG are now in the same situation where they can rest players domestically, still expect to win the title by a distance. But perhaps they lack as much high-level competition at home. Real Madrid and Barcelona have almost got that perfect situation where they do have enough good teams to test them. They have Atletico, they have each other, they have Sevilla, and, uh, you know, a couple of other teams will step up, like we might have another good season from Celta, or Real Sociedad might have a good season, or whoever. So there's enough there to test them, as well as the Champions League. But they can rest players, although Zinedine Zidane has found out in his last two league games that too much rotation does to drop you points. So... Looking at at those, Jack, do you think it's fair for me to say that no English team can win the Champions League this season?
1: I think I'd be really surprised at this point if any English team did, mainly because of the poor performances of English teams in the last few years. Like this decade, I think English teams have won two Europa Leagues and one Champions League, whereas Spanish teams have won five Europa Leagues and five Champions Leagues. I mean, clearly there is a big underperformance there um, compared to the last decade what is interesting is the debate as to why this is like I think we'd love we'd like to tell ourselves that the reason the English teams aren't doing better in Europe is because the Premier League is too good we were you know people say that it's so competitive it's so exhausting uh, there's no winter break you can't possibly expect an English team to still be competitive in March or April but you know 10 years ago that wasn't the case you know 10 years ago we didn't have a winter break uh, we had a physically exhausting league and yet Manchester United were clearly the best team in Europe from the, in the second half of the last decade. But before then, Arsenal and Chelsea were amongst the best teams in Europe. Um, so I think something else has changed, and we can't just say it's because the Premier League is so competitive and so tiring.
0: But the Premier League, I mean, it's also funny because the Premier League has loads more money than any other leagues now. Um, I was looking at something the other day, and the Premier League doubled the Liga's revenue last year. Uh, it is an immensely rich financially football league. And I just, I think there is uh, there was a theory that Miguel has talked about before uh, on our website that basically when, when defensive football ruled Europe in the, the pre Guardiola era, when goals, if you look at the amount of goals, the average team scored on the way to the semifinals, it was much lower, much lower in that era. And in that era you had Rafa Benitez. He's one of the best reactive managers in Europe. Won the, the Champions League. Jose Mourinho won the Champions League, and you know if you think about that Inter Milan team that won the Champions League, they did it with their backs to the wall. The, the Porto team was was, it was a curious season that, but that's the era that they were winning it in. Since attacking football came back into vogue, 2008, 2009, we've seen teams with the best attacks basically win it most seasons. And the good thing about knockout football is you're going to have those freak years like Roberto Di Matteo and Chelsea winning the Champions League, but. Do we think, Jack, that having someone like Jose Mourinho now, who's obviously a different a different coach in some ways to, to the old Jose Mourinho, do you think he makes Manchester United contenders, even though they could be a club, I mean, they finished what fifth or sixth in the Premier League last year, do you think they could actually go the whole way because they've got so much playing talent that if he can set them up correctly for knockout football, they almost have a better chance of, of winning that than the Premier League?
2: I, th- I actually think of all the British teams that United will go the furthest this season because of that reason, the way that Mourinho does set up for knockout football. If you look at last season where, by his own admission, he didn't have the squad that he wanted. They won the League Cup and they won the Europa League, two knockout competitions. He, you know, he sets his team up for these sort of, uh, these sort of events and... I can see him doing it again. He's the sort of stubborn, one-minded coach as well that would abandon the Premier League for the Champions League if he felt that he had a better chance of winning that. And he's also such a big name at the club that the club would have to back him whichever he decided, I think, was the better route to go down.
0: Perhaps that's an important point, that lots of English clubs do prioritise the league over the Champions League, Jack, whereas... Real Madrid, for example, there's only one thing that's important to them at the start of every season. You know, they can win the Liga and it's and it barely registers. They can win the Copa del Rey, and no one's really going to mind. The Champions League is really how many of these really top clubs judge themselves.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think and I think you're right when you said that English English football was kind of at the same pace or up to speed with European football in the last decade, whereas there's been clearly a divergence. I think in the last or since Guardiola uh, Barcelona, whereby. Europe you know continental teams are playing more attacking football and English teams haven't really progressed in the same way. and I think there's also been a d- divergence in priorities. I think that most you know the for an English club, the Premier League is a bigger deal than the Champions League. Um, that's borne out commercially, that's borne out in TV, um, ticketing, all the rest of it. like that is the biggest prize and it's also I think a more accessible prize. Like it's not that Premier League teams know what you need to do to win the Premier League. The evidence is you need a fit hungry squad, you need quite a lot of luck, you probably need a new manager who can give the players a kick up the arse. Um, You don't have to play especially complex football. And that has been borne out by the last few seasons. Whereas I think to win the Champions League, you now need a degree of sophistication, you need incredible quality in attack, you need lots of quality midfield, you need a very clear idea about how to play a sort of complex attacking football. And Premier League teams aren't built to provide that. And that's why I think they've taken, you know, what you might call the easier option, which is gearing themselves up for domestic rather than European success.
0: So five of the 32 teams in the Champions League this year are from the Premier League. Do you you think any of them can
1: win it? No, I mean, I think that if anyone could win it, it would be City because of Guardiola. But even then, from what we were saying earlier about Otamendi, I just think, you know, if if Josh King and Calvert-Lewin can do that to City, then you know, City are in far bigger trouble when they come up against against better teams. I know what Jack means about Mourinho and Man United. But I think that I kind of feel like today's best teams are now so good that even Mourinho doesn't really have that much of a response. Like I know United did get close in the end of the Super Cup and could have taken it to extra time. But for the first hour, I thought they got embarrassed. And I don't see how next time United are up against a team of Real Madrid's quality that wouldn't happen again. And, and also, you know, you, you said the exact words you used were complex, complex
0: attacking patterns. And complex attacking patterns aren't, aren't what Mourinho is known for. And it, as I say, we hadn't seen him win the Champions League in this kind of current era of football, which puts the doubt. Uh, I suppose we, sh- we should mention Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp, they're going to have a devastating attack. But again, the same reason as City. Unless, of course, either club went out in January and got a defender... Now, if Liverpool bought Virgil van Dijk and got through the group stages, you might think there was the suggestion of hope there, Jack?
2: Yeah, um, I think if you look at Liverpool's group, it is fairly straightforward um, and I think they, they can hit a few teams for some quite hefty numbers in terms of goals. Uh, but their, their attack is just unbelievable. But it's their defence which lets them down massively. Um, yeah, so if they did add someone like a Virgil van Dijk, if he's left to rot in the reserves at uh, Southampton and suddenly becomes available, then, yeah, by all means, they've got a chance. But I agree, I think it's they've got the same problem as City in terms of uh, all strength up the top, but nothing in defence.
1: And I think the evidence of Jurgen Klopp's time at Borussia Dortmund is that, he can only build his teams for success at home or in Europe, but not both. Both times he won the Bundesliga, they went out of Europe at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you're playing that kind of physically intense style of football, then not having those European games is helpful. The year that they got to the Champions League final in 2013, they didn't really challenge the title in the same way. So I think, and I don't see why it would be any different at Liverpool. Like they still have got a fairly thin squad, and therefore, I'd imagine it would have to be one thing or the other.
0: It's probably true also for... The Premier League team that gets knocked out of the group stage and has a deal with that embarrassment, they probably become title favourites or similar, you you guess. Chelsea, uh, we should probably mention because Antonio Conte doesn't have a great knockout record uh, from his time at Juventus. However, I think he's a very good coach. He's got a very good squad. They'll probably need to do something in, in January because Diego Costa will leave. And uh, if they bring in another striker to kind of buttress without squad what do you think of their chances
1: yeah i think it's an interesting point about conte and the the big gap really between the success he's enjoyed in league football and his coaching career which is the four league titles and the relative lack of success in cups or basically the z- zero success in, in knockout competitions as a coach i wonder if it's because he builds his team more for this kind of like weekly reliability basically rather than kind of big what you might call big game motivation i'd be surprised i think if they were to get into the very serious end of the Champions League, not least because I know they have made a few additions this year, but I'm not sure they quite have the depth that twice a week competition.
0: And and Tottenham's another team you see a lot of. What do we think of of Spurs chance? I mean, Wembley didn't work out for them last year. Uh, Any indication that it's going to be any different this season?
1: Well, I think they might be better at Wembley simply because of familiarity, but I think that they're I think their are football, which in the Premier League can blow oppositions away with that kind of organized intensity. It looks a lot less clever against European teams. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw that last year with Monaco, Dortmund and Bayer Leverkusen in the group stage. Uh, I think that they are kind of too easily picked apart. They, they leave themselves open in Europe a bit and they can't really, they don't really have that kind of, sec, that, that slower gear. I mean, you can't always play at a million miles an hour in Europe. And sometimes I think they might lack a little bit of... Uh, uh, just a little bit of subtlety. I guess um,
0: having covered all the English teams, we should probably you know, talk about some of the, the other teams involved, particularly the, the lesser-known teams because I think the re- one of the reasons, the great reasons the Champions League is excellent to watch is because we've got a lot of these teams that you don't get to watch on a, on a weekly basis necessarily, Jack. Do you have any dark horses, any teams that you think could be just particularly interesting to watch, particularly kind of fascinating projects? I, I think the likes about Atletico Madrid when they surged into the, the British public's consciousness uh, under Diego Simeone. They're an interesting side and, we, and we've and we seen Monaco last year who was so fun to watch and so, you know, the, the parallels drawn with that 95 Ajax team and then them being ripped apart so sad. This year, who are we watching?
2: Uh, for me, I think uh, RB Leipzig are the ones that I've got as my dark horses. Yeah. Um, they obviously have managed to Palm off Liverpool with Navicator for one more year, so they've kept arguably their best player. They've got team, uh, team Warner, team yeah, yeah. Uh, who you know, I think he was second or third in the Bundesliga scoring. Are they finished charts. second, right? They Bayern. finished second. They actually led the league, the Bundesliga, for maybe the first three months. They did, you know, they they ran them uh, pretty well considering uh, their status as a club. Um, and if you look at their Champions League group as well, they have been given quite a friendly group. Um, so they, they'd be backing themselves, a settled squad who have been together for more than a year now without losing any of their stars, they back themselves to maybe even top that group, avoid another European giant in the round of 16, and then after that, you you never know what could happen. It's, a, it's actually a, a pretty good
0: choice, I think. They're, they're an interesting project, obviously, for all the, the controversial reasons and ev- the reason everyone went after them in Germany um, to do with ownership and all these things, but They run the club in a very clever way. Uh, They've got a good coach, exciting young players. Uh, I think they've got a bargain bringing Kevin Campbell back from from China, who was very good uh, in Europe before he went for a big money move to China, which didn't work out, obviously. So I I think they'll be interesting. Other Jack, have you got any teams that you're particularly looking out for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that Group G is the most interesting group which doesn't have an English team in. Um, because as well as That's Leipzig, most even one, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've got Monaco, who we—it's almost impossible to know what to expect from. They've lost what five or six top players. They've brought in lots of players who are not quite as good yet, but might be down the line. Uh, T. Elements Mandelect, Stefan Jovetic, formerly of Manchester City. Um, so they're one to look out for. You've also got Porto, who haven't had the best time of it over the last year or two. You
0: coach though, Sergio Sal did a good job at Nantes as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And Besiktas, who've been. I think they've won the Turkish League the last two years in a row. They've got quite a good line now in kind of well-known foreign signings. This year they've added Gary Medell, Alvaro Negredo, uh, Pepe, which not not a lot of people saw, saw coming. And they play in their exciting a new few um, yellow cards in those signings, yeah, <laughs> yeah just a few. Um, in their exciting new stadium, the Vodafone Arena, uh, which has a great atmosphere on its day. So I think that they would be that would be a difficult place to go for any of those teams. They might be able to scrape through into the next round.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also think there's a, there's a chance in that group because you don't know, you can't even say which two teams you feel strongly are going to come out of that group. So there's going to be a wild card sort of feel to whoever gets out of that and into the, the next round. And why can't you go a long way? Monaco did it last year. There is there is a chance to go deep if you are settled and you've got dangerous players. But it, you almost need, because of the speed with which the transfer cycle goes now, you need to have someone who's almost unknown now. In the same way that a year ago, Kylian Mbappe was virtually unknown and, and Thomas Lamar wasn't the best known player. And, and they just need to take a huge step up this season, which is why I was thinking maybe sporting Lisbon could be interesting because Gelson Martins is a player I think, could go very well at Roma as well. Patrick Schick, uh, the Czech striker, who's he failed in medical, had a, some medical issues at Juventus and that deal fell through at the last minute. So Roma got a very favourable long-term loan deal with very favourable payment conditions. And I think that with, uh, with Monchi in charge of transfers there, they're going to get good young players in. As long as they've got a coach who can get the most out of them, I think they could be a surprise candidate too. So <laughs> I think overall, we've got to look at who's going to win the whole thing, Jack. One team, one word, unless it's a two-word name. Uh, Real Madrid. You think Real Madrid? Jack, for you?
1: I went for Juventus on the predictions that we published earlier, in part because I thought that everyone else would go for Real Madrid. Which they virtually did. And I wanted to give our readers something different. Um, I have to say, I think it would be hard for somebody other than Real Madrid to win it, because they are just obviously the best team. Um, That said, I think that even though Juve have lost Dani Alves and Bonucci this summer... I think for as long as they have Buffon in what will surely be his final season, uh, they do have a chance. And as ever, they have bought well. I think you know they have added good attacking players like Douglas Costa. And Dybala. And D- they've kept Dybala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, what, yeah. Sorry, that's what that's right. I mean. But yeah, in, yeah.
0: Uh, in buying him from Palermo when they did. Yeah, Benadeschi. So superstar.
1: I, I think they are. Look, Yeah, I'd, I'd say that Juve have probably got a chance getting as close as anyone. But then, you know, I thought they were going to win it last year and they didn't.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just... It's a really bad reasoning, but I just don't think Real Madrid can do it three times in a row. I think But if they hadn't won it
2: for the last two years, would you say that they would you be a pick?
0: Yeah, probably, yeah. Um I think Zidane has, you know, at the start of the season, it's interesting that he dropped points the last couple of games, and he has subtly mentioned that they basically don't have a good enough striker behind Benzema. With especially with Cristiano Ronaldo's suspension, which is a big issue for them right now, but so Alvaro Morata obviously has come into Chelsea and done very well. And he's, a, I mean, that's how high grade their backup was last year. And they won the Champions League. He's not there. If they buy maybe someone exciting, maybe a young striker, like they've looked at Casper Dolberg from Ajax. If they buy a young striker in January to give them a bit more reinforcement in attack, which is frightening because they shouldn't need any more uh, reinforcement in that attack, then it would be Real Madrid possibly. But I think it... It has to be the year for it to change. I think Juve is a great shout. Um, I'm not completely sold on Bayern. I don't think PSG are quite ready yet. I think you're right about the defence. I think Unai Emery can't be ruled out in knockout competitions, but the defence should improve. So I actually think Atletico Madrid, probably in the final year of this group, really, I think we expect Griezmann to go uh, next year. But in January, once they got through the group stage in January, Vitolo arrives and Diego Costa should arrive. So... Atletico Madrid in their new stadium with Diego Simeone, with Griezmann, a year older, a year better, with Saul Niguez, a year older and a year better, Lucas Hernandez, a year older and a year better. And they're one of the best drilled, best organised teams in Europe. So purely for difference, I'm going to go for Atletico over Real Madrid, although you're right, I probably would be going for the Bernabeu Club if it was any other situation. So as ever, our Champions League coverage uh, will be at independent.co.uk slash sport. We'll be discussing it at length on, on next week's podcast, of course. And uh, I guess there's nothing else really to say except uh, we'll see you next week. So from Jack Austin, goodbye. Goodbye. From Jack Pickbrook, goodbye. Goodbye. From producer Tom Goulding, sat in the corner over there and our friends at ACAST who helped produce the podcast. As ever, we remind you, if you can, leave us an iTunes review uh, with your questions in. We'll do listener questions next week and it does us a load of good in terms of other people finding the podcast. So until next Monday, I've been Ed Malian. This has been the Indie Football Podcast. Goodbye.